Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented as always by FL Montreal. Dan Delmar and FL boss Mike Newton is with you today. Good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Very good. Thank you. I'm really excited today because we have another institution on the program. Everyone knows Jeans, Jeans, Jeans in the Mile End for the last 50 years. And we'll speak to Boris Friedman, who's the founder of that business. And uh, we'll also talk about partnerships later in the program with our expert, Nick Moretis, from the tax point of view, um, ensuring those partnerships, having a good partnership agreement. And in Boris's case, having that partnership come in a little bit later in the business. So we'll talk about those issues and uh, and the clothing biz um, all on the way. But first, as usual, Mike, some news and notes. And uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that I suppose there's a municipal election on the way for those interested uh, in, a, in just a few hours, actually. Um, from the time this is airing on CJD. And uh, I think a lot of what, what the candidates talked about during this election, business-wise, has centered on downtown Montreal, the parking, the, the COVID situation, and just how to bring downtown Montreal back to life. It's, it's getting there, I think. We're getting there. Um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. What's your take on, on the downtown issue in this campaign, Mike? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's certainly not back to where it was. And, and, and I question at some point, uh, you know, whether it's ever going to be the way we knew the downtown core before. I think we're seeing a lot of changes. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, there's somewhere around a 15% uh, business departure rate uh, from the city. Um, but there's a lot more uh, you know, companies coming into the city at this point, thinking there's opportunities. Uh, and, and, and it's going to be interesting to watch. And it's going to be interesting, very interesting to see what happens. I mean, as people start to come back, restaurants are starting to pick up. Um, I mean, students, it's it's incredible. I, I believe there's an estimate as somewhere like this time last year, there was 12,000 students in the city of Montreal going to class. There's 114,000 now. Uh, back in class and back, uh, whether that's on a full-time basis or on a hybrid basis. So downtown is com- slowly coming back to life. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more activity. The restaurants, people are, you know, starting to get used to uh, what is probably going to be a normal for a while, which is, you know, vaccination passports and showing your IDs and, and, and playing in a world that I think we're certainly not used to and in, in where it's been. Um, I think retail is going gonna, is gonna to change. I think a lot of the old stores that you recognize may not be there when you come back downtown to, to see what's going on. And I think the the office space is changing. I think you're getting the WeWork, uh, WeWorks of the world that are starting to replace long-term leases. I know a company like Novartis uh, has taken up two floors in, in one of the WeWork buildings instead of, uh, instead of their own uh, environment. So it, it, it's going to change. I think we're going to continue to see a lot more of this. Um, it's I'm not going to say it's good. I'm not going to say it's bad. I think it's change. And, 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 you know, for those of us that have been around a long time, change sometimes is painful to watch. Uh, but in the long run, I think it's I think it's going to be good. Are we going to see just a net reduction of the number of people going downtown is, you know, regardless of how what the change takes form and how offices look? I mean, are there just going to be less people? My, so my, my feeling is if you were to take the number of people that'll come downtown in a week, it's not going to change. They're just not going to be coming down all at the same time on the same day. And I think that that's going to create a little bit of a havoc for for retail and for some of the restaurants where, you know, if you've got 
hundred thousand people in a, in, in a square, uh, a couple of square blocks and any given day, that's now 25, but it's the same hundred thousand over the course of the week. Obviously you're not going to have the same volume, uh, you know, foot traffic in the restaurants and the retail stores, but I, I don't think you're going to not see people coming downtown. I think what you're going to see is just a mix in the way that they do it, uh, which ultimately means, I mean, let's face it. If I came downtown five days a week, I didn't go shopping five days a week. So, you know, uh, ultimately, is that going to make a difference? I guess time will tell. And on uh, on supply chain uh, and, and just how that affects our cities, I, I'm going to talk about this next week on the show because I can't wait to get to that topic. It's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon right now around the world. Um, it's 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 actually quite problematic. I think people having to be a lot more creative in in order to find their uh, access to to supply. I think costs have changed. I think the method with which we're doing is changing. So again, a lot of things happening. Good, bad. I guess like everything else, uh, it, it works its way through in the wash, but uh, I think it's having, a, unfortunately, it's having a big impact on pricing right now. Yeah, so COVID being, you know, um, a, an accelerator for change uh, and that phenomenon, let's talk about what's called the great resignation and how COVID has affected um, the workforces. And in the States, we're seeing a lot of people quitting, frankly, a lot of people just just dissatisfied with traditional work models, quitting their jobs, going to newer models. But Mike, you're, you're, you're going to argue today the Great Resignation not really happening as, as much in Canada. Well, I'd love to tell you I could take a position, but I, the, the, the more I dig into this, the more everything seems to contradict itself. And, and you know, when you went, you, you go back to, we talked about, uh, you know, efficiency when COVID started and everybody went home, we talked about, hey, efficiency's up, everything's working great. Well, I'm not so sure all of those numbers were reliable because right now what I'm hearing is efficiency levels are down 22%. So, you know, you've got that contradictory uh, side and, and this whole great uh, resignation component, I you know, in the States, I agree, it, it's taken its toll, it's driving prices up. Um, in Canada, you know, there was an article in the Globe and, the Mail, Globe and the Mail this morning, which it basically stated the proportion of workers who remain employed from one month to the next, um, but who change their jobs is mostly lingering below pre-pandemic levels. So, you know, according to the, this article, they're telling us that it doesn't exist. And we're not seeing any kind of massive switch either out of industry or into another industry. Um, so I don't know, is that a byproduct of the way the government has handled uh, COVID and financing? Is it a different philosophical approach? Or once again, are we being subject to uh, trying to interpret news as it comes out with very little, uh, little, very little blueprint? The story from Harvard Business Review, uh, which uh, we love for, for their insights, retaining those employees amid all of this, this flux and this pressure to, to change jobs and the competitive uh, environment for employers. What are your top tips on how to retain your best employees? Well, I'm going to start off with saying I can, I'm going to argue both sides of this fence right now. And, 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 I, and I think the, the issue that we have is as people start to panic, uh, they start to uh, overplay the fact that people are leaving. So they're throwing money at people uh, to maintain. Uh, unfortunately, I think you have to do, um, you have to do your, your homework on all of this. And it's equally important to make sure that the people that stay are the ones you want to stay and that you don't just keep people for the sake of keeping people. And on the other side, uh, you know, you want to make sure that those people that stay actually are engaged and involved in what they're doing. And, and you know, as you sit to look at talent and you sit to look at the people that you're, you're going to employ, I, I, I urge everybody to kind of look at both sides of the coin on this one. And it's kind of why, Dan, you know, we chose 
you know, these two articles, because they both come at it from a very different angle, but I think both are, are, are important. You know, you need to make sure that you're keeping people that are ingrained in your culture, that have the firm culture, that are going to continue to drive forward under the same uh, MO as the business. Uh, and if not, don't overpay somebody to stay that doesn't want to stay. Uh, you know, uh, there, there are other opportunities out there. And if not, then find a way to do something different. Don't just throw money at a problem. You know, we have learned over the years that throwing money at problems is not the best way to proceed. I've said on the show before that I think sometimes you have to throw money at your, at your best employees. I, I, you know, as a millennial, you know, I, uh, my instinct is to say, yeah, just give them a, give everyone more money. Right. But it's not just about that. It's uh, millennials are also looking for culture and for purpose. And, and that's also a very important part of the equation. Well, and, and that's where, when you sit down to evaluate staff and, and, and your team and where you want to go with it, you need to take into account two things. You need to take into account how much money is there and how much you're going to spend and not overspend for the sake of overspending, but maybe spend it properly, you know, make, create a bigger division between those people that are really vital to the organization and those people that, that aren't. And, and, you know, it, it's a hard thing to do. We live, we live in an environment where, you know, we know that employees talk to each other about their salaries. We know that they're living in a world that uh, they can gain whatever information, either from Robert Half or from every other environment that's out there. But you have to be convinced that those people that you're keeping are the people that you want to keep. And then, don't only throw money at them. Make sure that, like you said, that the culture, the environment, the purpose that they wake up for every morning is there and, and ready for them. Quick contrast of a, of a couple of billionaires, uh, I, I guess probably number one and two, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. I mean, <laughs> Bezos of Amazon, it's just nonstop with the working uh, condition complaints and it's they have a, probably a PR department devoted just to that. Uh, on the other side with Elon Musk, I mean, you have people with Tesla, SpaceX, Starlink who are really invested in a social mission and you, you might not be working on the, you know, the, the spaceship, but you, but you still, you're part of the, the greater fabric of a very important story. Yeah, again, though, you, you know, you, you've got to look at the, what the employees want and, and the team that you're hiring. As much as that may be fascinating, that may not be what drives certain employees. And, you know, try not to create an environment that is not conducive to the environment that you're running a business in. Uh, you know, we, we saw the we saw the tech bubble in the 90s and the ping pong tables and the sweatpants and, you know, everything else that ultimately made people feel warm and fuzzy. Well, you know, as much as that was great, it's not really a professional firm environment. So what works, what can you learn, what can you adapt and where can, where can you go with everything? But I, I, I can't, you know, urge you enough to spend the right time to consider what your employees need. And if somebody leaves, don't panic. And I know that's easy to say sitting on the other end of a, a microphone, but the moment you panic, the moment you make decisions that will hurt you on, on a long-term basis. And we're chatting with our profile for today. His name is Boris Friedman. He's the owner of what I think is a plateau institution. It's called Jeans, Jeans, Jeans. And it's been in the Mile End for uh, about 50 years now. Boris, welcome to CJAD. Hi, guys. How are you? Excellent. How are you? I'm good. You're joining us from the car, by the way. Mike, he's, uh, he, the, he's so busy at Jeans, Jeans, Jeans. He had to get away from the store, and he's, he's held up in his car outside. We appreciate that. Gives me a little break from the uh, craziness. I'm going to say it sounds like a guy who's trying to flee his house when the kids are making too much noise and goes out to the car for a cigarette. <laughs> it's 
So let's uh, let, let's let's kick this off. I mean, obviously, we're talking about a a staple of Montreal as well as a staple of most people's clothing. I mean, most of the time, I'm either in a suit or I'm in jeans. So uh, I don't think there's anybody that uh, that cannot relate to our topic. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the topics I think we're, the guests we've had the last little while, uh, Boris, have been. Uh, uh, a little more uh, on the edge of, of social media and tech and everything else. And, and we're kind of going back to basics here. We're going back to an organization that has uh, done a phenomenal job of staying constant. And in today's world, to me, that that's impressive. What is Jeans, Jeans, Jeans? And, and, and tell us a little bit about how you kicked it off and how you're still working for, so strong. Well, we uh, I guess I started off Jeans, Jeans, Jeans uh, about 48 years ago was uh this happened by accident it was uh i was out <clears throat> at the what what used to be the farmers markets that became flea markets so a lot of the farmers used to come out and bring their livestock to uh to these markets and people would set up little kiosks selling either workwear or all sorts of little knickknacks and antiques and whatever and i saw a lot of kids coming out and they really had nothing to buy nothing to look at and i thought wow wouldn't it be cool to uh bring them out something that they could uh buy so that's when i ended up uh first time going to this company called roadrunner one of the ancient geners one of the first geners out there and picked up a couple of jeans went out to the flea market sold them and that's how i started You've come a long way from the flea market booth to, uh, what is it, I think a 6,000 square foot uh, basement uh, environment. And uh, look, a lot of things have changed in our society around us. What have you seen change in the jeans market? And what have you seen, I guess, more interestingly enough, change in the, uh, in the patrons that, that, that frequent your location? I'd have to say uh, not much has changed in their desire to shop. Uh, nothing much has changed in their desire to be to get good service and get good product uh, at a value at a at a good price. Those I think those basics have have remained forever. Uh, styles come and go. Uh, fashion changes from one day to the next. But uh, we you know, the mainstay of denim is is here. It's it's always been here. It's it's a fashion item, and we cater to that uh, particular uh, market. I think one of the most important things is uh, any given day you walk in, you're going to see Boris on the floor and uh, you're going to be helping people shop. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of retailers over the years have uh, taken a backseat to uh, trendy kind of sales uh, salespeople. Uh, I think your 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 mindset, your approach, the skill that you have, and years of experience uh, make people a lot a lot more comfortable when they walk in. Is, uh, have, you, have you found that you still have the same connection, the same link with uh, with your patrons today as you did uh, forty years ago? Oh, absolutely. We you know that's one thing that's remained constant in our in our business is that we. Um, you know, we still, we're on the floor. I mean, I say we because it's me and my partner, Leroy. Leroy has uh, become an integral part of the business in the past, I'd have to say, uh, 20 years. He's he's worked hard. He's also, you know, he has the same beliefs. He has the same values that I do in business. We're the first ones in, last ones out. And customer service is paramount. I mean, we the things we do for customers, it, it's unheard of. Um, I think a lot of retailers... Like you say, have you know, have gone 
of the net. They've gone all of a sudden. They've become digital. They've become uh, on social media, and, and they're looking for different ways to reach their customer. When really, you want to reach your customer when they come in the store. Talk to them. It's the easiest way to reach them. I want to talk about branding for a little bit. Um, it's part of what we do when we think about public relations, and it's my head is in that space. Boris, how long did it take you to come up with the name? And did you ever did, did you ever feel pressure uh, from your staff, maybe your younger staff members, to change it or come up with a fancy brand? Then jeans, jeans, jeans. Yes. Oh no, not at all. I mean, you know, everyone loves the name. Uh, we, you know, it was never. I, I mean, it was never an issue. Jeans, jeans, jeans made sense. It. Uh, Customers come in and they laugh about it when they come in and they come to the cash and go, oh, I just bought three pair of jeans because it's jeans, jeans, jeans. So you have to buy three pair of jeans. So, yeah, it's been a lot of humor, a lot of laughing about it, but name stay constant. No reason to change. So with bringing in, uh, bringing in a partner, have things changed over the years, uh, the way you look at things? How do you split up tasks or is it uh, just you guys are running to, to do everything is under the same, uh, the same banner and the same energy? We, um, I mean, the amount of business or the business itself uh, needs two, maybe three strong people to be able to run it. It's hard to divvy up tasks because every day those tasks change. So we both do the buying together. We'll do, you know, we do the selling together. We're on the floor. Uh, Leroy now spends more time at the dress rooms, making sure the customers have the right jeans. And I'll be more at the front end, taking care of the cash and taking care um, of the customers before they leave. If there's any problems, customer service, if there's any after sale problems, anything. So I'm at the front for that. And when it gets busy, I'm at the dress rooms again doing the same thing you're, you're famous for uh, your racks you're famous for a lot of inventory how do you guys manage to uh, to procure what uh, what's the basis for for buying product how do you go about buying it uh, is there a strategy to it or is it is it all gut feel uh, actually uh, some of it is gut feel a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're on the floor and we're listening to what the customers are asking for when you're listening to the customers, they're asking, let's say, for, for instance, purple jeans. Then, you know, you go out and you buy purple jeans and there you go. You're, so, you know, you're taking care of that need that the customer wants. Uh, others, it's just, you know, at the beginning of the season or we'll book uh, a year ahead. So we've already booked for a lot of our spring and summer of next year. And so we have certain trends that we see, certain trends that uh, are shown to us. So we'll end up turning around and buying into that a little bit and see how it reacts. If we see a, a good reaction at the beginning, we're out and we're buying more of the same goods. And also a lot of, our, a lot of the business has to do with having good relationships with your supplier. Right. So the, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen a change in, in supplier methodology and, and materials being used. Um, how, wh what do you see as being the biggest change, if you will, from, from your suppliers over the years? Is it in style? Is it in materials? Is it in, you know, philosophical Fabric. approach? Fabrics. Fabric. All of a sudden we've become a little bit more, when they say fabrics, I mean, a lot of the, uh, fabrics they're using now they're trying to get a little bit more socially conscious okay. a lot of them are going to organic fabrics they're going to reprieve which is uh you know uh 
recycled plastics and recycled mm-hmm. cottons. That's the biggest change I'm seeing right now. So is, is when, when you go in that direction, I mean, obviously you're following what the, what the customers want. Do you, do you have a uh, kind of a social uh, responsibility framework in the way you, you're, you're doing things? Um, or is this, uh, again, all customer driven at the end of the day? At the end of the day, of course, it's customer driven. But I mean, if a customer comes in and you offer them, if you're able to offer them um, an organic or a reprieve product and you can have the time to explain it to them, and they understand it, uh, you create the, the, the demand. So it's both, I'd have to say it's both customer driven and retailer driven. And uh, let's get into marketing a bit, Boris. Have, have you ever done it? Have you ever needed to publicize the business? How were those early days and how did you sort of grow to become um, the institution that you, you became? You know, there's always uh, the thought that you have to advertise and you have to, uh, pay a lot of money for promoting yourself and getting on either getting well today uh getting digital and all that but unfortunately we never really believed in that or i never really believed in that and my choice is always to give the best service take care of the customer and i always felt that if they had a good time they would go talk to their friends and it happened that way it grew just by word of mouth and it was, it's, it's amazing. Customers come in. The, the, let's just say an average day, a customer will come in and they'll turn around. They'll say, listen, I need some jeans. And they'll walk to the dressing room. They'll get in the dressing room, just wait for me, Leroy, or any of the staff to go and to get them their jeans. And they'll try it on. And as they're trying it on, they're going to come out and they'll get 30, you know, they get 30 different options of jeans to try on. And we'll, be there judging and telling them yes, no, and forget it. And after they come out of the dressing room and they found the jeans they like to just turn around and they want to hug you because they had such a great experience. They've never had an experience like that in their life. And I have to say, you know, having been there a few times, I, I can attest the fact that you guys really zero in on what people want very quickly. You know what the styles are and you almost know what people are are looking for before they see it. And I just want to paint a picture of what the place looks like, because it's not only a warehouse, but you have jeans stacked on top of jeans, on top of jeans, three, four rows up, packed so tightly to get together. Uh, let's talk about inventory management for a second, Mike. Um, have, you've been there as well. It, it can be tough when you have so many pieces. One of the hardest exercises for any business is, is inventory management. And, uh, you know, I think we, we've come a long way in, in the technology that, that we use for inventory management, but nothing beats the eye and nothing beats the feel. So I think, you know, Boris, as you, as you stack to the rafters, uh, you know, I guess a lot of that is, is based on where you things are going to go. How, how have you managed to, to do such a, a strong job in, in maintaining the inventory levels? Uh, do you ever find yourself having overbought? Uh, no, we're not really overbought. We found ourselves either buying a wrong style, but uh, we've never been really like caught with hundreds of pairs of the wrong thing. Uh, a lot of, I mean, you say inventory management. I mean, what we'll do is we'll turn around, we'll buy uh, X amount of units to start off with. And like I said before, if we find that the that style is moving, we'll buy heavier into it. We also, I mean, what we do, we're, we're very hands-on in our business, not only with serving the customers, but also when it comes to managing the inventory, we're uh, continuously reordering with our suppliers on a, on a weekly basis. 
So we'll finish our Sunday. Monday is really spent uh, going through our inventory, doing visuals, doing the counting, saying, okay, what do we need here? What do we need there? And we send in our orders Monday morning, uh, Monday afternoon to the suppliers, and this way it goes. It just works seamless, and it works perfectly because when we have that indication of what's selling, we just keep going after it. So you were in business almost 50 years, almost, what, 35 on your own. You take on a partner. Um, What prompted you to take on a partner? What prompts, I mean, it's it's not an easy thing after doing it yourself after all of these years. Was there a strategic plan? Was it the individual himself? Uh, Or is it just uh, it was time to to do something different? When... um... I, for me, it was really, I, I saw the growth in, in the business and I knew that I could not handle it on my own. I mean, we've, I've tried managers, tried, you know, uh, supervisors to help out and it, it kind of never really panned out. Um, then I realized you really need to have somebody by your side who has the same values and morals that you do and the same business sense that you do. And I guess maybe because Leroy started when he was 15, it uh, it gave him a chance to see the way, and it gave him a chance also to learn the business uh, straight, you know, from the beginning. And it, it came to a point where he, he also had the drive. He also had the willingness. He never really wanted to work for money. For him, it was the work. He loved the work, and he loved the excitement of serving customers. And the store opened up at 9 o'clock, 8.30 in the morning. He was there with me. When the store closed at 6 o'clock, if we had extra customers at State 07, never a problem. Any day off, he, he wanted to come to the store and do whatever he could. So he had that same drive and, that, that I had, saw it in him, and I said, you know something? This would be a great relationship. It's great to hear. I, I was going to talk about the neighborhood a little bit here and um, those three rules of retail, location, 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 of course, with the founder <laughs> of Jeans, Jeans, Jeans. Um, is that an advantage to you, the fact that you're in such a cool neighborhood with so many fashion designers, fashionable people? Do, do you get a, a clue about where things are going um, better than if you were in another neighborhood? Um, I, you know, it's a very difficult one. Um, we were in the Milan before Milan was cool. Remember that. So we were here when my land was the slums, and that's where we started the business. I think um, location, 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 for me, I, I'd have to say it's more a matter of, you know, build a good business, create a good ambiance, take care of the customers, give them good value, and they will come anywhere. Um, I mean, obviously, you're carrying a huge number of, uh, of lines uh, of different genes. Um, right. Right. So that, I mean, do you want to rattle off a couple? You want to give us an idea? Or are you telling me you carry just about everything anybody's going to want? Pretty well. We carry everything. Don't forget our market. We cater to, I'd have to say, from 15, 16-year-olds to 95-year-olds. And that's our customer base. So when you're catering to so many different people you need to have a lot of skews because what that 18 year old is wearing or wants to wear or that 30 year old wants to wear or that 95 year old wants to wear are three different things and in order to serve them you you need the inventory i would have to think after all of these years you could write a book you could write a book on the relationships that you've created, the people that you've seen, the times that you've spent. Uh, anything stand out as, as, as one of those, wow, this is, this is why I do this every day? 
You know what? It's funny, though, because I love doing it. I mean, I've been doing it, and I still get up in the morning. I love coming to work. I enjoy what I do. And what I think does it for me is when that girl or the guy leaves the store, and he's happy, and he wants to tell all his friends about it. And the real nice little perk or a little extra you get is when that customer turns around and hugs you and says, thank you. I appreciate it so much. You made my day. I also got to think at the end of the day, you probably play psychologist an awful lot. And, uh, you know, you're, you're not sending anybody a bill at the end of the exercise, but there's got to be a lot of satisfaction as you help people, uh, uh, like you said, walk out with a smile at the end of the day. And I'm sure they come to you with their problems while they're trying on jeans as well. So, Oh, listen, uh, we, there's nothing, you know, quite as intimate as when you're showing your bum to somebody. <laughs> And uh, Mike, let's uh, get the one piece of advice in a few minutes from Boris Friedman of Jeans, 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 uh, the uh, magical kingdom of, uh, of plateau fashion, as, uh, as our producer Marjorie has uh, referred to it as. Um, but first, let's head over to Nick Moretis. Nick is a tax partner at FL Fuller Landau. And uh, Nick, we're going to get into having a partnership um, and also life insurance and shareholders agreements and how that plays in to those partnerships. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Mike, those partnership agreements, not only important, but the paperwork behind them, the insurance behind them, there's a lot to do. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when we have a, a guest who's who's been in business for a long time. Uh, you know, we, we we don't always, you know, when you scratch the surface of, uh, of an organization, you don't always uh, find what you, uh, what you expect to find, especially when they've been in business for a long time. And when you look at what Boris has done and been on his own, uh, bringing in a shareholder after almost 35 years, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, that need to be done. You, you, and, and Boris, to me, is one of those guys that's kind of a gut feel kind of guy. And I don't see him being big on, on the paperwork and, and all of those things that come. But I, I, I think the importance of shareholders agreements and, and you know, especially in, in a situation where Boris and, and Leroy have a, a relatively big age gap. Uh, I think that there's part of this that life insurance uh, is important to fund uh, either a buyout or to move forward. And, and, you know, Nick, I know that this is one of those topics that if I wind you up, you can talk for hours on. But, you know, the discussion of shareholders agreements and how you fund with uh, life insurance is, is, is pretty much one of those things that we, we, we have a tendency to forget. Um, but it, it is definitely part of what we all do on a daily basis. Well, that's exactly right. And I was looking at uh, in Boris's uh, f- file where he's been there for 30 some years. He's got a young partner who came on. Um, you know, you're thinking about how we're going to client service and set up our business. And unfortunately, one of the uh, one of our roles, Mike, is sometimes come in. Yeah. Well, if things are going great, then it's great. But when things are going bad, we have to look at certain things. And one of those things that we look at is life insurance and how it fits into uh, the partnership. Um, we don't sell life insurance. I'm not here to sell it. I'm here to, for you, for business owners to think about it. But life insurance um, in, a, in a situation where you have multi-shareholders uh, is a means of funding on an untimely death. I mean, that unfortunately, what is it? The, the certainty of death and taxes uh, could happen. And how, what happens if your senior owner um, passes away suddenly? And that's happened in, over the years, uh, even amongst our clientele. Where are you going to get the money? Will the bank be willing to listen to you, the young partner, to give you the cash to buy out the deceased uh, money? So we look at life insurance. And there's a lot of products out there. Um, there can be temporary insurance and permanent. Um, that, that can be uh, uh, honed down to what it is that you need. But you're basically looking at your business, acquiring this insurance policy, 
for the purposes of buying out the deceased shareholder and it and helps a lot of ways. It provides funding, so you don't have to call up the bank. Um, the deceased knows in his head uh, that he or she has now made certain that, it, that the estate is getting cash within a reasonable time after death, as opposed to um, waiting for the bank to come in to finance and, and provide the cash. Nick, one of the th- yeah. one of the things that's interesting, you know, and, and you started with this with when you opened, is this whole discussion on timing. You know, things are going good. Uh, I'm healthy. Everything's good. Uh, our shareholder res- relationship is good. Everybody's like, well, why do I need to do this now? And in 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 fact, that's probably the best time to explore it. It is. It right? is exactly, Mike. It is the best time. You have a lot more options um, because you're younger and healthy. And no one's expecting you to to uh, not be there tomorrow. The premiums are a lot lower. You can get into some of the more nicer packages that, so that the cost might be funded a little bit more upfront. And it'll be less cost than uh, as you get older, like I am, where insurance premiums in the 60 when you're 60 something years old are a lot more than when, than when you're 30. So it's don't wait till you're sick to get insurance because you probably won't. You're doing it when you're healthy and you don't need it. That's when you buy it. Um, but insurance is only part of the game when you're talking about uh, uh, business. Uh, business owners having it to be able to buy themselves out, you now have to figure out, well, if you pass away, Mike, you, Mike, you and I are partners. If Let me go the older guys. So if the older guy, me, passes away and the insurance comes into the, our business, well, how do I know that you're going to put that money over to my estate? There has to oh. be some agreement. One of the things I mean, that yeah. one of the things that happens, Nick, and, and it happens often, is you and I get into business together, but we don't yeah. get into business to be in business with our spouses. Exactly. Right? So if you pass away, I'm not in as much as I like Joanne. I'm not into it to be in business with her, and vice okay. versa. So part of this whole exercise of strategically on the, I mean, you're not looking for a cash flow. You know, you're not looking for a windfall in the lotto ticket. What you're looking for is a proper, structured, organized way to find how to deal with tomorrow's issue as well as create the fluidity and the continuity of a business without having shareholders that don't want to be there. That's right. But you need an agreement because without that agreement, it is your word against my state's word, what that insurance was to be used for. So, so that's why, so a shareholders agreement is vital. It has to say that on death there's insurance and that the company is going to use its best efforts to pay that insurance out to the estate and to do it in such a way that it is tax efficient. So it's not just the insurance getting, it's having the agreement. So everybody knows while everybody's around the table, how is this insurance going to be paid out? How long is it going to take to get paid out? And to make sure that the insurance, which is received tax-free by the company, is paid out to the estate as much as possible tax-free. And if that's not in an agreement, the estate and the survivors are going to be in court. And that's something that's very important. So it's a two-edged two edge things yeah. that when you're doing. So that's okay. that's my basically say it does fall into our tax planning, but I think that's something that has to be looked at. Yeah, I, I think one of the things we often forget is, okay, I got a shareholders agreement, great. Okay, I've got life insurance, great. You know, there's, it, it's nice to say you've ticked the box, but the reality, how you set that up, how you plan it, how you execute on all of this, who owns the who owns the shareholder, uh, sorry, who owns the uh, life insurance? Uh, how does it get used to pay that, out? There's a whole mechanism analysis. There's a whole mechanism here that's huge and people need to understand. It's not just about going to buy a life insurance policy and making sure no, it's not. you've got a shareholders agreement. And, that's and, right. and, and that's not an attempt to, you know, to, to sell and make money on this exercise. The problem is, is if you're not going to do it properly, you might as well not do it at all. 
well, or at least get something or do some buy insurance yourself if necessary. But the the whole point is it, it it's part of the management structure for the governance of the company, and that it continues the succession of the company afterwards. Nick Moretta's tax partner at FL. Thanks so much, Nick. Take care. And as we close the show, let's turn to our guest, Boris Friedman, the founder of Jeans, 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 and ask Boris, please, your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Yeah, I would think that the bit of advice or the advice I'd give someone is to turn around and I really love what you're doing. You have to enjoy it because in order to become successful, you're going to have to put in a lot of hours. And those hours can be painful at times, take away from your social life, take away from your personal life. But at the end, if you love what you do, it'll work out. <laughs> Very good, Boris. Thanks so much. Boris Friedman from Jeans, Jeans, Jeans. Uh, Michael, really uh, an example of uh, someone who is hustling, becoming an entrepreneur. And just over the years, you know, you wake up and one day you're just an institution. You know, it's it, it's great, Dan. There's a lot of times we sit back and we say, "Oh, it's nice to see the the young blood. It's nice to see different uh, industries pop up." But I got to say, you know, having been part of Montreal my entire life, it's great to see Montreal institutions. And Jeans, Jeans, Jeans certainly falls into that category. So, hats off to Boris and and Leroy, and uh, you know, keep up, uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking out the time for me. Thanks so much to Boris Friedman of Jeans, 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 the founder of uh, that business. And don't forget, you can head over to todaysentrepreneur.org for over a decade worth of entrepreneur profiles. And uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. We'll be back here next week. Take care. Talk.